you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. I suppose we get straight into this week's episode. (laughs) What text are we doing? It's an Irish saga. It's pretty unknown, but it's one of my favorites, and I won't tell you the title in full until we've covered it, because that sort of gives away the ending. So, this is another Irish saga, so forgive me for botching the names. It is called The True Judgment of Neil Frosach. And Neil was a king, so this, so he's one of the kings of Ireland, and this text itself is found in the Book of Leinster, which was written in the mid-12th century, and it's also in the Liber Flavus Fergusorum, so the Book of Flavus, Flavus Fergus, whoever that is, I do not have any familiarity with that book in of itself, but that was written in the early 15th century, so we've got two, those are the only texts that we have of this story. Um, so two very different centuries, but the tale itself is about uh, Neil Frosach, who was a king of Ireland, and he's a, he's a historical king who ruled from 763 to around 777. So this story, I mean, could have started then, but it probably came more in the 10th century, and then was finally written down in the mid 12th century. At least that's the text that we have. Blavus it means blonde, by the way. So you've got the, oh. the book of blonde. Blonde Fergus. Fergus. I like that. That's fantastic. Okay, so the the Irish stories, at least this one, tends to be very very short. So I'm gonna string it together with the sort of birth story of Neil Frosach himself, because that's interesting. Also in terms of his name and his heroic character, because the story that we're going to jump into has a lot to do with his right to kingship. So it's important to understand both the heroic biography of Neil, but also how he gets his right to rule. So the heroic biography, for those of you who are not familiar with it, is one of my favorite things. It sort of ties into the hero's journey, uh, which I've probably already talked about. But the heroic biography, every hero has to have, or generally in Irish stories, every hero has to have this weird birth and background as a kid. So we see this in the North Sagas with uh, Egil son. We do see that, and he's like tearing the heads off of horses and, you know, beating other kids' heads in when he's like seven. Wait, is that Egil or Gretir? I think Gretir was the horse and then Egil was beating other kids' heads in. Because he gets bullied, and then he's like, that's not very nice, and he goes after the other kid and just hits him in the head with a rock and kills him. So we see that in the Norse sagas. We see that in King Arthur in a certain certain light, where he's got to pull the sword out of the stone when he's fairly young, and that gives him the divine right to rule. We see that in the foundation of Rome with Romulus and Remus. They're being brought up by uh, the she-wolf, and we see that in the Irish stories as well. So, jumping into that, so Neil Frosach also had a brother called uh, Aid Allen, 
or something along those lines. It depends on your Irish pronunciation. Is that two words? Two words. A-E-D space A-L-L-A-N. So Alan is the same, but it's along the lines of aid, aid or aid Alan, I think. And it's got the accent over the A as well. For any Rex Factor fans out there, hashtag remember I. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we've got, yeah, Aid Hallen can also be spelled A-E-D-H. And that you have that D-H, that Irish sound, um, or Irish Irish spelling, which indicates different different sounds. So Aid Hallen, it can sort of be a, a V sound, I think, in some names like Dervila is a very Irish name, but that's a B-H. So that's a different, that's a different tip thong. Don't, I'm not the linguist. Digraph. <laughs> Digraph. There we go. Thank you. I should know that, but I don't. So we've got these two brothers, and both think that they have a right to rule. So we get these two different dynasties of stories about who has the right to rule and how that kind of goes down in history. We have these very interesting birth tales for both of them. And Ed Allen, his birth tale, it sort of already illegitimizes him because... There was the daughter of Congal, son of Fergus, of Finnad. But yeah, you, you have this whole genealogy of the kings of Ireland, and that becomes increasingly important. And I mean, you see that in pretty much any dynasty. But anyway, uh, this daughter bore a son secretly, generally because her father had put her into a nunnery, so she was a nun. And her father had put all this money into the nunnery and given them cattle and all of that. And so he's protecting her, but he's also protecting her chastity by putting her in this nunnery. Yeah, who's having sex with the nuns? This is important. Yeah. (laughs) So she's safe there. She's in her little tower. It's the princess in the tower, but she secretly has a son with Fergal. So Fergal loves her, she loves Fergal, and they sneak out and she ends up pregnant. And Fergal was the prospective king of Ireland, but Congal was the actual king at that time. So there's potential themes of incest, but it's not clear in the story. Because we don't know whether Fergal is related or not. It's not listed in the story itself. After that whole genealogical thing, we still don't know if it... You know... Not enough. No, we don't. No, we don't. It is not in here. <laughs> also, this guy is named Congal, like the hat. Uh, C O N G A L. Is that a hat? Not like that. I think that one's spelled with a K. Oh, what kind of hat is that? It's the one uh, Samuel L. Jackson wears. It looks kind of like a beret. Oh, okay. Huh. I did not know that. Okay. Well, Congal finds out that his daughter is pregnant. And she's been seduced by the devil. And he threatens the messenger's life because, you know, shooting the messenger was okay back in the day. So he goes to her in the nunnery and Fergal's there. And so she freaks out and says, okay, I will put you into the mattress. And so he climbs into the mattress and she gets on top of the mattress. So This does not sound safe for breathing No, definitely not. But... You know, if she's just, oh, oh, hey, dad, I'm just, don't mind me. I'm just reading my Bible on my bed. We're good. Then, you know, she's not going to move. Hey, honey, why is there a big, like, tear in your mattress? You know, well, they did, I think think they did stuff them quite regularly, but, you know, for insect purposes. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you'd have, you'd have to find a way to stuff it. Yeah, gotta get those insects in. Yeah, or out. 
Presumably. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's like a hair shirt, an insect mattress. Ooh. It's part of penance. Ooh. Ooh, that would be horrific. But if anyone deserves it, apparently it's her. Anyway, her father, Kongle, shows up and searches the whole place, searches the house, and does not find Fergal. So... I am now imagining Kongle as Samuel L. Jackson, by the way, and it, it can't be helped. That seems entirely valid, and... If this were turned into a film, I would want it to be a comedy with Samuel L. Jackson in this role. That seems like the only way to do it justice. (laughs) So, he prays and cries in front of his daughter and asks her forgiveness because she was a virgin so that his sin against her might not be upon him. What? So, he's like, oh, I've sinned against you, my daughter, for thinking that you were not chaste. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, she's lying to her dad because she's pregnant. But anyway, this is how Adalyn was conceived. And then through that period of time, he's born. She entrusts the kid to two of her maidservants to drown the kid. Which, again, heroic biography makes sense. We see this. This sort of happens yeah. with Moses. She's a nun, and that is the good Christian thing to do. Yes, you know, precisely. I don't think she's a nun. She lives with the nuns. It's Again, it's not clear in the text. But anyway, she's like, oh, my dad had better not find out about this, because I've already lied to him about Fergal, so we're just going to drown the rat and get rid of him. So, one of the women decides we can't kill this baby. We can't do it. So, the two are arguing against each other about this. It's like the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other, except it's two women over a kid. And they... Wait, I know this one. You cut the baby. <laughs> exactly, right? You know, Song of Solomon and all that. Well, I guess it's not Song of Solomon, but it's King Solomon. Yeah. But no. Song of Solomon is a Tony Morrison. <laughs> That's true, isn't it? Oh, man. I mean, it's also in the Bible, but, you know, that too... Oh, yeah. But I, I, yeah, I right. like that that is the first reference that came to mind for you, was the Tony Morrison book. I do work book. in a bookstore. That's fair. That's fair. Anyway, so these two women are arguing so much about this that the one sets the baby aside, and they literally have a fist fight over it. Nice. And so... Now, is this like the ones you were telling me about in Alaska with the jelly? <laughs> I mean, again, we can imagine it that way. I mean, we've already got Samuel L. Jackson in the scenario, so you might as well. The river certainly, like, the river could turn into a jello river. We have some, we have some creative license here. In any case, they wrestle each other until one woman clutches the other by her Adam's apple until she agrees. Okay, I have a question. Mm -hmm. Is this a trans woman? Because I'm not sure about this Adam's apple business. I don't know, but that's what the text says. Because that's the only explanation I can think of as to why a woman would Would have an Adam's apple. apple, Unless she's she's trans. Yeah, so either either this is a trans woman. I mean, I want to go back and look at this. That's what the text says, is by her Adam's apple. Which is, well, this is interesting anyway, once we get to the later, the later text about... Neil Frostick's act of truth because there's a lot of instances of queerness going on. And that's all I'll say for now. Future Mac would like to clarify that yes, I know that the Adam's apple is just cartilage surrounding the larynx and technically everyone has that structure in their necks. 
what perhaps past Mac should have been noting is that it is unusual for a cis woman to have a sufficiently prominent Adam's apple that one could grab it. No offense to any cis women who do have prominent Adam's apples. I don't mean to larynx shame anybody. Thank you. Yeah, so she, quote, clutched her by her Adam's apple until she agreed to everything. Which is to say... How? I can't imagine talking very well if someone's clutching your Adam's apple. I mean, I guess you just say uncle, uncle, and then you're like, fine. You know, I'll let up. So anyway, these two women raise the kid, which is interesting because they're not listed as nuns either. And they're separate from the nunnery where she, where the princess is living. How many people are living in this like nun community that are not nuns? I don't know, but they're not listed as, as nuns. One's called, I'm going to have a hard time with these names, Kenelconel or Sinelconel. It's C-E-N-E-L-C-O-N-A-I-L-L. That's the first one. And the other one is Kennel or Senna, whatever. It's the same root. And the, the, the final name is uh, Jochen. So unless that word is a Middle Irish word for sister, which indicates that they would be nuns, then I don't know. So I hear key taps. Yeah, let me, let me look it up. I'm starting to wonder if there are any nuns in this nunnery. I know, it's it's a good question. Or if it's just like a women's community that just ended up being translated as nunnery. It looks like it just means kindred. That could be sister. Could be sister. So they could be, it's race, people, kind, common heritage. Oh, like Old English kin. Yeah, yeah. Kin. Yeah. Let's see, it could be, let's see... Kindred of Owen, because Jochen is the Old Irish or the Middle Irish for the modern Owen. So it's it looks like I would argue that this is more likely a clan, and so these these uh, women are from the same or are from different. They're from different clans. That's that's what makes sense. Yes, because Connell is another branch of another clan. Yes, so. These are two women from different clans, essentially. But they raise this child together, and notably Owen, so Sister sister Owen, the, the lady from the clan of Owen, likes the kid. So, dynastically, that's the clan that takes in Adalyn. Okay. Yes. In any case, just it just so happens in these stories that the princess, the mother comes into the house, you know, several years later, and sees the child, and she's like, how old is he? And he's four years old. And she says, oh no, alas, I've committed a great sin by destroying a boy who would be that age, uh, just to escape the anger of my father. And... Has she just not thought about this until she saw a little boy and was like, oh yeah, babies are humans. I think she was really convicted by seeing the child. She's like, oh man, I, I would have had a son like that, I think is probably what hit her. Okay. You know, you get the, you get, I don't know, did, men probably don't get this, but women certainly get, or at least some women get like baby fever. Oh no, no, men get Yeah, that. okay. Yeah, so she sees, you know, she sees the kid and she's like, baby fever, I would have had a son. And... The two women are like, no, 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 you misunderstand. This is your son. And so he's restored back to 
the line of kingship. So he's brought out of it, preserved on the edges of society, and then brought back into it, which is very characteristic of the heroic biography, is to be born under a set of strange circumstances, and then an attempt on the child's life. The child escapes and goes out into the wilderness or on the fringes of society, and then is brought back in. So this is very characteristic of the heroic biography. So what's she going to tell Samuel L. Jackson? Like, hey, this is the son I forgot to mention. I guess. 40 years ago. I guess. Congratulations, Grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how that went over. The uh, the tale conveniently leaves that out because it's not important to the heroic biography. You know, it's not plot relevant. So, you know, the fact that he is Michael, or no, Samuel L. Jackson, not Michael Jackson, is not plot relevant. So it's just not mentioned. So. We have a starring cast in this film. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so anyway, we... I want to see Samuel Jackson do an Irish accent. Oh, that would be horrific. Yeah, I'm not sure he's any good at it, but I want to oh see it. Oh my gosh. Top of the morning, mother... <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Say what again? I dare ya. I dare ya. Say it again. Oh no. Oh dear. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how the Irish in Ireland are, but the Irish in, like, Boston, that would blend right in. It would. It would. Oh man. Okay, so we've got Aid Allen's birth story, and now for Neil Frosach's. His is a lot less dramatic, and his other, he's got another name, so kings have lots of, lots of names. Neil Frosach is one of them, but he also, the name is associated with the word for showers, like rain showers. Mm -hmm. And that's really important. Because, first off, you start off with his mother, who is the fairest and most beautiful woman in all of era, and uh, so on and so forth, and she's the daughter of the king, blah, blah, blah. She was childless for a long time, and she goes into... So she's literally a fairy tale character. Yes, pretty much. Yeah. And she can't bear a child, which is a horrific fate for a noble woman or a princess at that time. Both, yeah, both, dynasty's important. Yeah. I mean, both literally and, like, snarkily I say this, because it there's one one area of this where it's like, well, a woman's only job is to, you know, provide heirs. But at the same time, that is a huge part of her role, in, yeah. especially in early medieval society. So that's, you know, it is something that she would be distraught about. Like, when you're talking about the aristocracy, providing heirs is, like, job one exactly. of any monarch. Exactly. But even for that's... a king, for a king or a queen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's why uh, the argument is made that Beowulf is actually a terrible king, because he doesn't have heirs. He doesn't establish a dynasty until he's literally on his deathbed. He just goes, you. You, kid. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, poor Wiglaf. That was bad kinging. Bad king. <laughs> yeah, that was bad king. Oh, man. Anyway, so she goes to a church and finds a nun, the holy nun uh, Lutherin and asks for the nun to pray on her behalf to have a child. And this apparently works. And she yeah, sure. yep, she gives birth to a son, and that son is Neil Frosach. And there's rain showers at his birth, and they're magical in some element, and so da-da-da-da. Man, I'm getting some, like, wild pagan vibes from this. Like, that stuff keeps happening in nunneries, but are we sure they're nuns? And, like... Instead of going to a witch for a spell, you go to a nun for a prayer. Yeah. Yeah. And so already you have the start of these two 
brothers who are in warring dynasties and Eight Allen's story is very unholy, but that is not the word that I'm trying to come up with. It's not sanctioned by the Lord, shall we say. Okay. Because it's a desecration in the house of the nuns. It's not okay. Da 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 da. The child is trying to be Sacrilegious. killed. That's the word. Sacrilegious. Thank you. Unholy. I was an English major in my undergrad. I should, <laughs> that should be revoked. You're still an English major. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm just doing older versions of English now. <laughs> My spelling has declined rapidly since I took Middle English. That's fair. I, I honestly cannot always tell between, like, Middle English and Modern English is just spelled wrong. That's so valid. And at this point, all of my texts are in some variation of Middle English and Modern English because I can't spell anyway. So I never, I don't think I ever passed a spelling test, but, you know, modernized spelling is a farce and I disagree with it in principle. But yes, there you go. That's a good, that's a good excuse. <laughs> that, is a, that is a diatribe for a different time. It's a principled stance. It is. <laughs> and it's, I, you know, I can historically back it up. Shakespeare never signed his name the same way twice. Standardized spelling has not been a thing for that long, but maybe it should be. But I'm, I, I, anyway. We should also bring back the thorn while we're yes, messing with orthography. we should. The thorn and the F. I like both. And we should pick up the Scottish way of spelling what with a Q. Wait, how do they spell it? All the uh, WH question words in, like, Middle Scots was were spelled Q-U instead of W-H. That's amazing. Did that come from the Latin? Like, quote? I never thought of that. I thought it was just their phonetic approximation. Well, it might be, but that's interesting. Huh. I, I, I mean, phonetically, it makes sense. What? What? Yeah, because you, you can see how it's kind of a middle ground. Yeah. Or at least it's you like related a, to... A Q. What? Hmm. I mean, either way. My brain just went straight to the Latin because that's what's in my head the longest. Interesting. Yeah, we should have done that instead of W's. We've got enough W's. We don't I like that. Enough. I like that. Also, shout out to Scottish people Twitter, because that is still the greatest thing I've ever seen. I, I love it so much. I, I just love their way of spelling everything, because you can read it, and if you just read it, you can hear the Scottish accent. Mm-hmm. It's the greatest thing I've ever seen. In any case, so, in Alan's birth story and his how he's being raised, it's very sacrilegious. Whereas Neil Frosick's is, con- he's conceived and born and raised as though he had the divine right to kingship already. So we obviously know that there's some background historical editing going on here in these stories. And that is, in fact, the point, I think, of these stories. Is, yeah, they're folk tales, but also they're political tales. So we have to keep in mind that these are political tales, they're contemporary political tales at the same time as they're legends. So I'll skip forward a little bit and get to the actual tale that I want to talk about today. Wait, we haven't started yet? No, this is the background of the two kingships, because I just think it's a little, I just think it's interesting. So the other thing about Neil Frostek and the showers is that at his miraculous conception and birth, there were three showers that like portended his birth. The first was a shower of wheat, a shower of silver, and a shower of blood. So there's three. I would not consider most of those a good omen. You would think not, but here's the interesting part, is that at the beginning of the story of Neil Frosick's judgment, it says, there was a firm, righteous, fine king. 
who was ruling over Ireland, Neil Frosach. Ireland was prosperous during this time. There was fruit and fatness, corn and milk, and heat. Everyone was settled on his own land. Which is to say, if we go back to the three portents of his birth, there was a shower of wheat, a shower of silver, and a shower of blood. So every, everyone's on their own land, so that's a shower of blood. Is, this is the land they've inherited. Mm-hmm, it's their family's mm-hmm. land. Okay. A shower of silver, meaning you've got prosperousness, there's fruit and fatness. And then a shower of wheat, meaning there's corn, milk, there's grain. There wouldn't really be corn, but there's wheat. Well, I mean, corn just means grain. Grain. Maize. It, wa- it wasn't until the, the Columbian exchange that corn mean, meant maize. corn. Yeah. Yeah. And even... I think that some other English-speaking countries still just use it to mean grain. It's just us that it's always been maize. That's fair. Also, that's the one that makes sense to me, because grain and kings are always associated for obvious reasons. Yes. Yes. So we've got this whole fertility idea going on, divine right to rule, so the showers connect with the beginning of the story. Neil Frosach calls a great assembly together and brings in the cream of his crop, the best men in Ireland, around him. And so other kings and clan leaders come in, the nobles of the territories come in, and the states of the assembly all come in. There's boys, there's jesters, there's heroes of the Irish uh, in strong, eager bands, racing the horses round, and it's a big festival, essentially. And the point of this is that in Irish kingship, a good king, and I've talked about this before, will have fear flatha. He'll have fear. He'll have wisdom, a supernatural wisdom that you're not otherwise going to find in a king. Mm -hmm. So he has to prove himself as a king. It's not enough to have a heroic biography. You also need to prove yourself. All right. So is, is this related to the idea that like the king and the land are the same thing? Like he knows it intimately because he is the land. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. And it comes back to what we were talking about in our previous Irish saga, which talked about coming in as this idea of, the kingship herself or Ireland herself or the land itself. She's tied yes. to it. It's coming back to me. Yes, exactly. So it's, this, the, it's the, the same what thing. What, what, what were they called? Like the sovereignty goddesses. Yes. Yeah. So it's a sovereignty goddess. So his representation of the land being fruitful and having these showers is a representation of, of his divine right to rule over the land because the land is prospering under him, so on and so forth. But he also has to prove himself through Fiafafa. His ruler's mm-hmm. wisdom. And so what occurs is, while they were there, a woman comes to the king carrying a baby boy. And she gives the boy to the king. Which, I mean, that has a whole lot of symbolism in of itself. I brought presents! Yeah! But she, she gives him the boy and says, For your kingship and your sovereignty, find out for me, through your fearflathach, who the carnal father of this boy is because I don't know. Wild. I mean, she has to have at least a short list. Here's the thing. She says, I swear by your ruler's truth and by the king who governs every created thing, that is to say, God, I have not known guilt with a man. So. I mean, maybe she just means the sex was good and she doesn't feel guilty about it. You would think, but that's not what the Middle Irish is talking about. And that's, yeah. So it's very, very, very clear that she, number one, is challenging the king. So it's already interesting because this woman is coming up to the king and challenging him with Fiafafa. 
And he cannot deny this challenge because this is the first time that he really establishes his kingly rule. So he can't Mm -hmm. step down from this. And she's also swearing that she's never been with a man and she doesn't know who the father is. So this already is a massive puzzle, right? She's claiming that she's a virgin who has a kid? Yes. You could make a religion out of that. You could. Or a mediocre prequel movie. Also that. (laughs) Oh dear. So the king sits there for a minute and he's thinking about this. And then he turns to her and he says, Have you had a playful mating or a rolling with another woman? Do not conceal it if you have. Okay, I see where this is going. Mm -hmm. And she says, I will not conceal it. I have. Okay, so it's not that she's a virgin, it's that she's a lesbian. Yes. Because she's never been with a man, but she's been involved with a woman. Yes, or at least she hasn't been involved with a man recently. And I'll, I'll get into that later. And so the king says, it is true, it is fear that the woman you had mated with had just been with a man. And that which he left with her, she put into your womb during the tumbling. Okay, I really don't think that can happen. I don't think it works that way. It can. What? It can. There are historical instances of this happening. And I can give you the link of the article that I talks about this. I absolutely want to read this article. <laughs> Uh, I'll pull it up in a minute. So in the playful tumbling, so on and so forth, she ends up getting pregnant. He says, that man is the father of your child. Let it be found out who he is. So it's astounding that this is not an obvious solution whatsoever, Mm -hmm. but it is historically possible for that to happen. And it does fit. Like there's, it's interesting to me that there's no miracle here. This is not like his own miraculous birth where, you know, we pray and then we get pregnant. It's not that. It's literally just lesbian sex. The king's like, all right, lesbian sex. This is a very possible solution in very early medieval Ireland. This does not surprise anyone for some reason. This is just the king's fear father. So it's an uncommon event, but he still divinely knew it. And so after he says this, the text, oh, I should, I should add this in, actually. There is a note, I think, in the 15th century text that says the reason that those two women were together was because the other woman, the first woman, didn't get anything out of it with the man. She was not satisfied by him. He apparently got his. She didn't. I think she uh, made the right call then by going to find a woman to... You know, if that's what suits. I I can't argue with her logic. (laughs) Exactly. So in any case, both of the recorded stories talk about this, and they talk about it through the fear flatha. In any case, at this point, the king blushes, or his face goes red or something, and, you know, presumably because this is a sensitive topic to be bringing to court, and this air rushes out from his head like a cloud or a shower yeah wait wait like a cartoon yeah they get embarrassed and there's like steam yes that is literally (laughs) what yes (laughs) okay and at this point as it as it comes up and comes off of him there is a clamoring from the sky and they saw a strange malignant specter fall to the floor of the assembly putting men and horses to flight, and nobody stayed but for the king and a few people around him. Okay. What are you, says the king. 
a human being, says this creature. <laughs> I have questions. And uh, he says, what put you in that plight? That's what the kick is asking. He's like, what is going on here? Obviously, if some guy just falls from the heavens, you're like, what is going on? Also, does he not look human? I don't know. <laughs> I think it's more like, you know, I mean, <laughs> sort of just popped up next to the king in the last one. So, you know, she was a fairy, presumably. So who is this guy? We don't know. But he, at least he's declaring himself as a human. Yeah, but he's a malignant specter. Yeah, you know. So this guy says, I will tell you. I am the priest of Inishbofina, and I had built a house, but there was no craftsman in the world that I thought was good enough for me. And so a demon came to me in the shape of a man, and he made the wood of the house, and he would take no payment except that I should bow down to him, and I did. And I was seized by swelling of pride and vainglory, and was caught up into flight, and the demons took me. And I've been, they've been ruling over me for seven years. Okay, so he, he swelled like a hot air balloon. Yes, due to his pride. He literally had such a big head, he floated into the ether with the demons. And then he just fell into this completely unrelated scene? The reason that he fell, and he explains this, he says, When you gave that fine, righteous judgment this morning about the lesbian sex... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that is not the phraseology he used. No, he says when you gave the fine righteous judgment this morning on the woman who came to plead with you. But, you know, so on. Yeah. We happened to be above you at that time. The vapor which rose from you became red and flew up and scattered the demons. And they were unable to hold me in the air so that I fell down. And I fell down through the truth of your rulership and your, the divine judgment you gave on the child. That is wild. Yeah. What? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So he's, he's so wise that people who have been stolen by demons just fall out of the sky after his judgments because the demons have been frightened away. Yes. And it, it, it happened because of the vapor from the blush. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. It is a wild story. I feel like there were uh, substances involved in writing this story. <laughs> and so the reason that my professor, I love him, the he gives this one a different title than Neil Frost's Act of Judgment. He calls this one The Lesbians and the Flying Priest. So that is the title of, of this story. The less formal title, shall we say. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, so that is that is essentially what this story is. And I'm trying to find... Here it is. This article is Dan Wiley's article titled Neil Frostick's True Judgment. So he's talking about the story and he says, quote, Although accidental impregnation by uh, tribadism is a recorded phenomenon, as David Green has shown, it is hardly an obvious solution. Not only is it an extremely rare occurrence, but so far outside the ken of normal human experience that few people would have thought of it. And that is indeed the author's point. Only a true king, one intimately in tune with Fiaflatha, could have made such a deduction, end quote. So that is how this goes in this story. Let me see if I have any other notes from this article, because there's a couple really interesting bits and pieces of secondary literature that go on with this. There's the bits about the showers. I already talked about that. 
And then there's another article that I found, which is fantastic, and I can link to this one too. It's called Queer Conceptions and Calculations, Neil Frasich and the Easter Controversy. And that's by Philip Bernhard House. And this one talks more about how the tumbling of the women is the Irish word komshuthad or something like that. I do not come to me for Irish pronunciation. But the, yeah, the 16th century version of the text, so it's the 15th or 16th? This is 16th. So it's probably correct. The 16th century version of the text adds an important detail on why the first woman ended up sexually involved with the second. Quote, her husband lay with her and didn't satisfy her need. So she lay with me to finish her pleasure. So... Was the second woman just on call? I don't know. Their relationship is not defined, but presumably they knew they knew this about each other, and they had they had established this relationship beforehand. So I would hope so, because I mean, otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't know. We don't know who either of these women is. But it's very interesting because um, this author argues that it is in fact the lesbian act which helps save the priest's soul because without him blushing about it the vapors would not have gone up he's not wrong which so that's one interpretation the other interpretation is that it's so improper to talk about sex in general that he the king blushed because of that so we don't necessarily know whether the king is more embarrassed about it being a homosexual act or whether it's just sex in general because either way you did not talk about that in the royal court yeah i do like the the interpretation that lesbian sex saves your soul (laughs) well it at least helped out you know a certain priest who was too pride you know too prideful anyway so ta-da! but it's it's also interesting because this is the second case in neil frosick's list of stories in which there is a child being born through some sort of divine intervention or without a man involved. So there's Neil's birth himself, which I assume happened through the princess and a guy, but they couldn't, he couldn't be conceived without the prayer of the nun. That's right. They didn't mention a father, but they didn't. It's kind of assumed. It's assumed, but I feel like they would have made a bigger deal of it if there weren't. Right, exactly. But the the nun did have to intervene on on her behalf. But then also in this section, you have these two women and a man as well. So there's this again this weird triumvirate of needing two women and having a man as well with these stories. Which I don't know is ne- like is that necessarily significant? I don't know. It would be something that's interesting for further study, I suppose. There are a lot of... What's the word I'm looking for? Threesomes. <laughs> that is not the word I was looking for. No. There's a lot of threefold motifs in Irish. That's the yeah. one. I, I couldn't I resist. Was... <laughs> I wasn't even thinking Irish. I, w- I was thinking like Hecate. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Like the threefold goddesses and all that. There might also be a lot of threesomes. Yeah, who knows? I certainly don't. But it's it's also interesting that this is the case which is brought to him, which indicates his true, righteous, divine right to rule. And this is so outside the norm of anything that we would see in a traditionally Christian scribal tradition. Yeah, they tend not to acknowledge that that's a thing. Yeah, yeah. And as far as I know, this is the only irish example of medieval lesbianism and it's even more interesting when you add in what you observed about the adam's apple with the other woman forgot about that Mm -hmm. which 
Bernhardt doesn't address in that article, but I think that's a, an astute observation of your point. Thank you. Now that I think about it, though, a lot of there a lot of pre-Christian cultures had like space for transgender people. Mm-hmm. That's true. Maybe it really is a leftover of that. I don't know, or or maybe it's a, an idea about man sin and like I mean at, at the Adam's apple, or maybe it's, maybe it's just a term for the throat. I don't know, but it's it's interesting that that it's specified. Wait a minute, we had two kings at the beginning. What happened to the other? Eight Allen. Yeah, the other guy. Let me see. Well, apparently he lived in a pigsty. It was foul indeed in the house. There were buffoons and satirists and whores and jugglers and oafs. There's vomit everywhere. There's dogs eating the vomit. And then Aid is in the middle of the royal bed as if he's waiting for battle. So not a very great look for him. No. And... Although it sounds like the aftermath of a pretty great party. That's, that's true. Does he have his own story somewhere, or is that all we get? Is part of a prelude to compare to Frost? I'm sure he does. There's a battle, and there's a verse from him in the annals of Ulster, the Battle of Groans. That is a that's a badass battle name. Yeah, that's pretty good. Wait, so why was he in this story? He was in this story because of the two dynastic lines. Okay. Yeah. So we've got the king who's meant to be the king and the king who's not meant to be the king. But, and there is a little bit of a prophecy about the two of them where it says the first son, the elder son, which is Aid, would take the kingship. His reign would be strong, heroic, vigorous, terrifying, and lustful, but short. And the younger son would take the kingship honestly and piously, and his descendants would be famous and royal. So you've got both. And so they both become king. But Aid Allen, including in his stories, is presented basically as a bad king. Okay. Yeah. So that's why he's included, is because there is there is a prophecy concerning him, and he does die in the battle. Okay, okay. As far as I'm getting my history correct, I might be totally wrong. But sometimes they go back and forth, and it depends on which story you're looking at. But yeah, I'm, I think it's one. Yeah. So yes, that is the story of the lesbians and the flying priest, which is one of my all-time favorite Irish sagas. I don't blame you. That's pretty great. It's it's just so bizarre that one, it's historically possible for that to happen. And two, that a random Irish saga would have that be the means by which a king is righteously enthroned. And a priest is saved from demons. Hey, hey, you know, three for, what are the three for one? I don't know. Threefold things. All the threes in Irish. Yeah. That whole thing is an, is an example of... <laughs> creativity <laughs> yeah you really you really look at that story and you you sort of wonder about how that went down how that story was written it, it is hard to process mm-hmm. yep there you go the lesbians and the flying priest i just love like i think that would be a fantastic animated cartoon the story or just that title I mean, all of the above. Like, it wouldn't be a kid's animated thing, but just to see, like, the priest get such a big head that he just floats off yeah. and, like, the demons grab him, I think would be hilarious. And you just get this this woman coming up and thrusting her child into the hands of the king, saying, I'm a, I'm a virgin! And you're like, uh, okay, there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> Every time you describe her, like, just handing her the baby, <laughs> I imagine her saying something like, I have extra, you want one? <laughs> Well, she wouldn't have extra, would she? 
<laughs> this is there, this is one too many as it is for her. <laughs> That's true. She very deliberately did not want this in her life. Okay, well, shall we jump into our segments here? Yes, let's do that. <laughs> okay. Uh... What say you? Best dialogue. The only thing I can come up with as like a standout line of dialogue is the king's euphemism when he asks the woman, like, have you been tumbling mm-hmm. with another woman? Mm-hmm. That's it. I, I love that detail. Like, oh, oh, the, the tumbling. It, it depends on how that's translated, because one of the translators said playful mating another says tumbling so there's this idea of not to lay with necessarily but to be in engagement with it also has connotations to warfare the middle irish does i kind of like the phrase playful mating because like it implies that this is maybe casual relationships of that sort would have been common Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. go like oh yeah this is this is something women do for fun outside of their marriages that would be that'd be one way to read it i think the other way to read it would be to say it's not legitimate like would would they have understood that as a legitimate form of intercourse and relation with another person was it taken as seriously or not and i mean with that in mind there's pros and cons to that. If it's not taken as seriously, then maybe these women could get away with it more, yeah. you know? Or maybe it was that, that sort of casual relationship. I mean, I have to assume that anything that doesn't produce children is going to be taken slightly less seriously by people in this era. I think so. I th- especially if... I mean, I'm trying to think about it in a, from a Christian perspective, since they... 10th century. When did when did Christianity come to Ireland? Oh, I should know this. Uh, oh, a while ago. So it was... I know it was around during the Anglo-Saxon period there were Irish monks. There were Irish monks at Lindisfarne right. in like the 9th century. Uh, there were Irish monks at Lindisfarne in the 7th century, actually. So if we assume that Christianity was already around at this time, then such relations would presumably not have been approved of. But that, I mean, that's not to say that they didn't exist whatsoever, of course. I mean technically it's not in the bible it just that's true their their only line about uh homosexual relationships is do not lie with another man as you would with a woman Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they they just don't acknowledge that women lying together is Is even a possibility yeah yeah which is interesting in in of itself well i think it's part of uh the same trend we get with a lot of medieval and or ancient sources is that the life experience of women is just kind of sidelined. Definitely. Because most stuff is, is written by men. Yeah. So something that would be exclusive to women is going to not show up in the literature very often because they're not the ones writing it. Exactly. Because patriarchy. Yeah. According to my notes, around 400 is when Christianity is first generally introduced to Ireland. So this would this would be a Christian thing. Yeah. And, I mean, we see that, that with, the, with right. the priest, you know, coming down from the sky. So... I mean, given that, that also puts a different reading onto the text itself. Yeah, but like this was a firmly Christian society when this story is, or, or at least Christianity had been there a while. Yes. Who knows, like whether it's whether everyone's Christian. Right. Yet. Right. I mean, it's like the Iceland Icelanders. Yeah. Exactly. How formal is it? We don't really know, but it's there. Can you eat horses? Mm-hmm. That's the litmus test. Okay. I think my other my other piece of best dialogue 
my favorite piece of best dialogue is just, what are you? A human being. <laughs> like that needs to be established. But I feel yes. like that's, I feel like that's the first thing that you want to do. If something supernatural immediately happens and you're presented with someone that came from who knows where, you do want to understand what sort of person they are. Like, the angels have the good graces to introduce themselves in these stories, and we know that the talking deer doesn't introduce itself. That's true. And so, generally speaking, you want whoever supernatural thing you're talking to to introduce itself and say what it is. Grant me the gomen. D&D game. Let's go. How are we going to use this text in a D&D game? First off, we can open it up with the diversity here, you know? I think first off, that's very important because if, if you have someone who maybe is trans or is not super comfortable about that at the game or at the table, you can introduce an NPC who's like that, you know, or something like that. Cause you, you do, we do have at least perhaps maybe a possibility of this in this text. Yeah. I like that. And it's, it's, it's always a good idea to provide some diversity to, normalize it as much as possible so people don't feel ostracized. That's true. We also, again, have themes of women wrestling. So now you can have women wrestling over children in this scene. So, like, I don't know, maybe an adoption center and this one kid is really cute and, I don't know, that's a really bad example. (laughs) Never mind, don't use that. That's, no. (laughs) I take that back. (laughs) That's really bad. I was just waiting to see where you were going with that. <laughs> but regardless, you know, maybe, you know, okay, okay, maybe it's like a PTA bake sale. You know, you've got wizards, like, you know, little wizard Jack and little wizard John, and they, they need, you know, new brooms, so or new wands or something, or new cauldrons, and, you know, there's a tussle at the bake sale, and their moms, you know, wrestle. I don't know. I don't know. Just please ignore me. I I swear I got enough sleep. I, I believe you. Personally, I just like the idea of having PTA moms go insane. Yeah. I, I mean, that honestly, that makes sense with everything I know of PTA moms. That's, it's always engaging. Always. See, my first thought for how to like use this in a D&D game would be like, hey, a lot of D&D games have riddles. Maybe you could do the the lesbian one. But then I'm like... No, you would end up in a hour-long argument with your players about whether that is really possible. That's true. That is so true. I mean, you can at least incorporate Fear Flatha in some way. You can incorporate King yeah. Wisdom and Riddles, and I don't know why I didn't go there first. I don't know why I went to, like, <laughs> PTA moms fighting at an adoption center. Like, please don't do that. I mean, if it's, if it's the campaign you want to run... Go for it, but otherwise, maybe not. Oh dear. You, I mean, you could always incorporate this with um, mythical births. You mm-hmm. could have that be a part of it, or you could have to sneak, you know, the girl's boyfriend out of the castle or out of the nunnery or something like that. Or, you know, maybe your player is said sir who has to sneak into his girlfriend's nunnery, I suppose. Baron did it. Baron and Luthien did it, so. Maybe they're uh, contracted to help a local nun hide her incipient birth. There we go. That's a good one. Incipient? Imminent? Imminent. A local nun has a baby. 
help. Yeah, there you go. Or, you know, like, you have to get the child out. You know, instead of having two women fighting over the child, you can save the child. Or, there you go, that's a that's a good travel encounter. If you're, like, alongside a river, you you come across these two nuns who are fighting and there's a child, and you have to sort that out. And maybe you get to yeah. deliver the child. And, important, don't give the players any sort of hint as to whom they should deliver it to. Make them figure that out. Yeah, that would be way more interesting, especially if it is in fact a princess. I want to see what happens if a group of players ends up with just a baby and they have to go, what do we do with it? I have had that happen to me. I gave my players a baby to deliver and they did end up taking it to the local orphanage. And one of them ended up slapping a 15 year old teenager in the face. (laughs) Wait, wait, I think I was there for that. Yes! I remember the slapping. That was amazing. I forgot they were delivering a baby. Yeah, you guys were delivering a baby. And somehow, like, they were, the kids were doing magic and they weren't supposed to be doing magic. And you had to convince them, like, no, keep it a secret because it's cool. Then you guys got really frustrated because at one point they're like, You've killed a man. That's so cool. And it's like, no, that's the opposite of the lesson that we wanted to teach. And so <laughs> she just slapped him. She just slapped the kid and the nun saw it. So you guys got kicked out of the orphanage for hitting kids. Oh, no. So that's, that's one outcome. a good reason to be kicked out of that's an orphanage. True. <laughs> if someone starts hitting children, you should make them weep. Yes. So, listeners, that is one possible ending to giving your players an infant child to take care of. But, you know, I mean, it could end up like Critical Role and Kiri and giving the little, you know, Kenku child a loving home. So, shout out to Critical Role. We love you guys. Clarification. Zoe loves those guys. I've actually never seen Critical Role. I hear it's nice, though. I'll sign off on that. Oh, dude, that's even better if it's like a, a, a non-human child. That's true. Baby Harpy. I was going to say a demon baby. Also good. That's that's even better than a cursed sword, because like you can't kill it, but it's also cursed. Because then your players have to struggle with the idea of, like, do we kill the cursed child? Do we, like, can, can we do it? Or do we just let havoc rain upon the world? Maybe uh, it turns out demons grow to mobility much quicker so like in a few weeks they have to deal with a a baby that can walk around oh no that would be so spooky or you know hover around or slither around or whatever you want your demons to do that would be great or just like an apparating baby yes who just like who even knows maybe it's just a naturally magical child and it's like jack jack from the incredibles and then your players just have to deal with this voraciously magical child and hey what do possibly demonic magical babies eat we don't know we don't know maybe anything maybe whatever they maybe want you in the middle of the night that would be the creepiest friggin way to wake up <laughs> like a baby like chewing on your ear <laughs> someone should do it someone should please do it and tell us how that goes now that i say that i bet people have woken up that way but it was probably their baby and they knew it was there that's probably true that would still be unsettling yes either way okay well, um... One, one more thing. Yes. If your players do something particularly impressively, like, holy, people fall out of the sky. 100%. <laughs> 100%. 
Like, you can only do that once, but... And just just save it. Just save it. I was rescued from demons by by your wisdom. Or, or as we said in our first episode, someone might have a bout of extreme eloquence and vapors might rise. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's there. You can make them roll performance. <laughs> Are you sure you got enough sleep last night? I really night? hope so. Oh, oh no. <laughs> I'm going to regret doing this so much. <laughs> I love this show. I, I am definitely enjoying oh, this episode man. a lot. Okay. I okay. think we've exhausted that route. Komitatus. Who do we pick for a D&D party? Oh god. Um, Personally, I want the the lesbian woman to be a part of the party. Which one? The one who has the kid because okay. she has enough charisma to get up in front of the king, hand him a baby and say, "I challenge you in front of the entire court to tell me who's the baby daddy." Yeah. Yeah, that does take uh, uh guts. Yeah. I think definitely her and I feel like the king's fear flatha would be very good. He seems like a very high wisdom character. That's true. I feel like it would be hard to incorporate a king into a D&D party, though, because they'd have to keep going back to do, like, governance. If Star Trek could make it work with the captain going down to the surface of planets, I think you could make it work in a D&D campaign. That is an argument, <laughs> and I will accept it. <laughs> I mean, if Captain Kirk can keep going down, and Picard, for that matter, if they can keep going down instead of sending a scouting team, then you can make it work in your campaign. One of the things I like about uh, the early seasons of Next Generation, one of the few things I like about the early seasons, because the early seasons were not as good, was uh, that for a while Riker's job was basically to tell Picard that he couldn't go places. Yes. You're the captain. We need you. You could do that with, with, with the king. You're the king. You can't go. But, and then you but go they and need you... my wisdom. They need my wisdom. <laughs> I think that would work. Who else? Falling Priest. Falling Priest is pretty. He's pretty good. He would be. I feel like this is just a, a group of bards here. Who would the uh, Who would the priest be? Oh, he could be a priest. That's true. He could be a cleric. No, no, he should be the warlock because he had to bow down to the demon. That's right. He made a deal with demons. He did so he's automatically a warlock. And then he was freed by the king's eloquence. There we go. All the eloquence. I love that. That's coming back in an actual, textual way. We're keeping that one. Yes. Okay. Is there anyone else that we should include? Mm. I feel like maybe the woman who beat the other lady into compliance. I was just thinking that. Because she's a fighter. Yeah. So you've got, this is fantastic. This is great. You've got an, a gender equal party where you've got the woman fighter and then the really eloquent lady. And then you've got the clerical priest or clerical warlock. He's a warlock. And then you've got the really eloquent king. I feel like that's actually really well-rounded. That's much yeah. stronger than I thought it would be. The fighting woman, if she's actually a nun, which is still not clear, then she could be a paladin. Yes, I like it. And her, her divine mission could be saving kids. That's so wholesome. I think it would be great to have a paladin that instead of walking around like a knight is just dressed like a nun and has like... A club hidden under her head. Yes. Someone make it happen. That's amazing. <laughs> That's great. Because she can look all peaceful and wonderful. And then next thing you know, she's got like, she's got the, what are they called? 
The knuckles. Brass knuckles. Yeah, she's got like, the brass knuckles on. Thoughts and prayers written on each one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and depending on your cultural reference points for nuns, either she can sing about how the hills are alive, or she can be Whoopi Goldberg. Yes. So okay, we've got Whoopi Goldberg, we've got Samuel L. Jackson, we've got an all-star cast for this. Yes. And everyone is still doing it in Irish accents. Absolutely. Yes. I honestly believe Whoopi Goldberg could probably do an Irish accent if she had to. She probably could. Definitely. She has an EGOT. She knows what she's doing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. What is our next one? The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Is there any terminology? Well, there's Fear Flotha. Yes. We've covered that one. Definitely something to incorporate into Definitely. Let me write that one down. Trying to... Because I feel like there was a lot of Irish vocabulary at various points. I'm trying to remember if any of it's... Most of it was names. Pertinent. Yeah, that's true. Oh, there was the two ladies' names, C-E-N-E-L, which means kin or clan. So if you wanted to use that as an inspiration in world building, I think that's a fantastic one. You could. uh, This is maybe a stretch, but... What are you could be incorporated as the appropriate way to uh, greet a stranger on the road. That's true. What are you? Or at least in supernatural encounters mm-hmm. that are very clear. Yeah, you could do that. Well, I mean, you don't know if it's a supernatural encounter That's unless you true. ask. That's true. That is very true. What are you? Well, especially if, if you have a very mixed race campaign, you know, and you're, and mm-hmm. you're not quite sure. Yeah, that might be the... the preferred preferred way of getting to know someone i think it would be interesting to make it so like that's an ingrained habit in one society because they've had enough dealings with like fey and devils and stuff that it's just normal practice to ask a stranger what are you and then when they're traveling they pull the what are you thing out and get like i'm a dwarf you Why are you asking me this? Oh, racist? You racist? Yeah, that would be great. That's fun. You can play with play with cultural encounters like that. It's like, no, 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 I didn't mean any offense. I do. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Especially if it's intra-party. One of, the, one of my favorite things is give your players a beautiful understanding of their own culture. And tell them little things about their culture that they are very familiar with. And give them understandings of their culture and how their culture sees the others in the world. And then that way, you will inherently have your players not only learning from each other, but also questioning each other and being like, wait, how do you, why do you see elves that way? You know, or like, no, 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 I'm an elf and my history is totally different than that. And so you, you automatically have a deeper, richer world because your players are doing cultural integration with each other. That's one of my favorite DM tips. So I think that's good for that segment. Okay. Street smarts. If something comes from the sky and doesn't say fear not, ask questions. Yes. Ask who it is. It's only polite. Well, what it is. It's only polite. Better street smarts in any interaction ask, what are you first? Yes. Yes, indeed. Make this a societal norm. Yes, we need to understand. <laughs> what are you? Not who are you, but what are you? We got to get the met- metaphysics down and then we can start getting personal. Also, personally, I'd be fascinated to see what kind of results you'd get from asking people what are you when they introduce themselves Th- yeah this this has been a theme of this podcast so would they say 
human or would they answer with their profession or like yeah. would they just go what what are you listeners what are you let us know yes tell us what you are ask people what they are and tell us how they answer yeah we'd like to know call it a call it a social experiment ask non-people what they are and tell us if they answer Ooh, that is equally as important i feel like if you ask a cat what are you and it says i'm a cat there are further questions. That's true. And we need to know about that's, it. That's true. Also, you know, like, take care of your shadow. Ask your shadow how it feels about things. I feel yeah. like we forget about our shadows quite a bit. You know? Does it have a nice place to sleep, too? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, if you ask your shadow a question and it replies, you, that's something to be taken into account. That is true. We just... Check in with your shadows. Yeah, you know, cover all your bases. Cover all your... like. We know that you're naming your plants. We know that you talk to your plants. Everybody does. So just, you know, think about the other sentient things in your life. Maybe including your shadow. Just ask. Don't give me that look. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a follow-up to that. I'm just saying, you know... <laughs> Anthropomorphize so much in our society. Like we do this with robots. I, I feel like a shadow is not that that much of a step. No, I suppose not. You know, there there are weirder things in this world. But regardless, we've gotten very off track. Yes. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Any other street smarts that we have in this text? Um. If you're not using protection, wait between partners. Yes, that's a big one. I did not think that medieval sagas would would be a good teacher for those things. But hey, you know, be safe. Use protection. Yeah, use protection, especially if you have multiple partners. Yes. We'll just say that across the board. Because otherwise, you might accidentally impregnate your same-sex lover. Yes. And, you know, especially if she doesn't want that, now she's got to get rid of a baby. Like, no. And we've already seen that... Drowning the babies doesn't work. Right. You have to hire a party of adventurers and give them the baby with no explanation or instruction. Either that, or if you do end up killing the baby, you will get runes on your hand, and we already know that that's a bad idea. Yes. We already know. Talk to your local priest. Talk to your local priest. So, you can avoid all of that by just using protection. So, street smarts. Anything else? Any other street smarts? I feel like there's something to say about the mattress, but that honestly seems to work. I was going to say, like, be honest with your dad. He doesn't seem like that bad of a dad. Yeah, there didn't seem to be any actual consequences. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, the nunnery would have lost all of their, like, endowment. So, okay, okay, street smarts. If you do need to hide your relationship from your old man, stuff your lover in a mattress. And don't implicate the local nuns. Yes, don't do that. Yeah, stuff your lover in a mattress. This podcast uh, does not accept any liability if you suffocate your lover in a mattress. <laughs> also true. <laughs> it worked in this tale, so, you know, you're doing it wrong. If you do suffocate your partner, you did it wrong. You know, be gentle, get consent. And you know what? It's up to you how many insects you want to have in your mattress. Also true. You can take them out, you can put them in, you know, you do you. You know, Mac, it's just rude to refer to somebody's lover as an insect. <laughs> Come on. Look, I'm not judging them. <laughs> okay. Street smarts. <laughs> Sorry. Take our advice. We get it from the medievals. Yep. Oh, dear. What else have we got? Best 
moment. Best moment. I'll let you go first because this was my saga. So the one that really stands out to me is when the king like exudes a puff of steam <laughs> in the air. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's fantastic. Oh man, that's yeah, that's a great one. Because for a second you're like, what? Why is that in here? That's that's from a cartoon. And then it actually has plot relevance because it makes a priest fall out of the sky. I genuinely don't think there's another best, better moment in this saga. Altogether, you've already, like, you've just been hit in the face with the fact that, like, his fear floppa has divined this relationship. And then next thing you know, you're like, well, this is pretty weird for a medieval text in the first place. And then all of a sudden, this priest comes falling out of the sky because the king blushed and just, like, let off some steam, quite literally. Does this mean that kings are automatically voyeurs if they're fearfloth that tells them about stuff like this? Ooh. I mean, he wasn't involved in any of it. He wasn't. It's not like he's, like, a peeping Tom about it. But, like, he, he knows. But he only knew when she asked. He didn't know beforehand. Ah. He considered it. He had to consider it. That, that would be just a wild power for a king to have. As someone who is one with the land, I know about all the sex my subjects are having. Just automatically. Oh, man. Yeah. It would be kind of distressing. That would be kind of distressing. <laughs> I feel like that would that would take up too much of your mind, like, when you're getting it on. I feel like it would make a lot of interactions very difficult. Yeah, that's fair. Like, if you're trying to talk to your advisor and you're like, I, I know about what you were up to. About. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that just, I was that trying means, to think of an example, but... I mean, if that were the case, then you wouldn't have a lot of cheating relationships within the court because the king would know. I mean, do they know he knows? Maybe That's he's too fair. embarrassed to bring it up. Ooh. But like, I mean, to be fair, Fear Flotha goes for a lot of different kinds of wisdom and he does have to consider these things. So it does have to be a challenge presented to him. Fair. So, but you know, adapt as you will. <laughs> Or, you know, with with a grain of salt sprinkled on top. Okay. The court. Go ahead. Pick a character. Any character. I'm having difficulty. We don't have a lot of supernatural characters in this one, so you've got you've got quite the cast. No, as far as I can tell, they're all mortal. I, I realize this is only going to increase the gender imbalance of my court, but I do <laughs> like the woman who came up and challenged the king she's to so great oh man i was gonna pick her okay so i'm gonna say what, what should we call her lesbian lady she doesn't have a name man why do so few of these women have names well to be fair most of the characters in this one don't have names like the king has a name and that's basically it like the priest doesn't even have a name the nuns have names yeah well the the two the two women who took care yeah but those were clan names ah okay so you've got the lovely lesbian lady Good alliteration there. Thank you. Oh man, now I've got a pick. I don't want the priest, because he, he's just, like, he's already got too much of a big head. So he's not coming. Um. I see what you did there. I did. That was not what I intended. I feel like Neil Frosach is the best option besides the lovely lesbian lady. I did. He was the other he's one. The, I was yeah, he's considering. the other one, because he's got the, he's got the Fearflacha, he's a good king, and... You know, who knows what other priests he can dispel from purgatory. Or what other vapors he secretes. Exactly. You know, he's at least a good biological resource, if nothing else. Yes. That's a horrible <laughs> sentence. <laughs> it's not inaccurate. No, it's not. Okay. There we go. There's our court. All right. 
Final rating. Okay, final rating. I love this one. This is one of my favorites, so I'm going to give it a, like a really terribly high rating. My only issue with this is I wish there were more of it. Right? <laughs> Just, like, this is exactly the sort of thing I like. There's, there's stuff that's completely inexplicable. Mm -hmm. There's things you would not expect medieval society to be, like, open about. Mm -hmm. You get some kind of view into what women are doing in this period, which is rare. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm gonna give it a nine. A nine! That is very high. Oh, man. See, my question is, I, I feel like I can't necessarily give anything a ten. I feel like there is some ambiguity when it comes to who some of these people are. So I can't give it a 10 for being super, super clear. So I think I'll go with nine as well. But this right. is this is a good one. Yeah. This one is, is one of my favorites. our highest scoring yet. Yes, it is. Oh, good. By a pretty good margin. Yeah, no kidding. It just ticks all the boxes, I suppose. Okay. Welcome to the Leech's Corner. So this is coming from the Medieval Health Handbook, uh, the Tech Unum Sanitatis, and this is sort of a modern compilation. There's these beautiful folios um, of different ingredients or different people or, or in, you know, just various people doing different things. As a brief introduction for our listeners, the... Tacunium sanitatis is about the six things that are necessary for every man in the daily preservation of his health, about their correct uses and their effects. The first is the treatment of air, which concerns the heart. The second is the right use of foods and drinks. The third is the correct use of movement and rest. The fourth is the problem of prohibition of the body from sleep or excessive wakefulness. The fifth is correct use of elimination and retention of humors. The sixth is regulating of the person by moderating joy, anger, fear, and distress. The secret of the preservation of health, in fact, will be the proper balance of all these elements, since it is the disturbance of this balance that causes the illnesses which the glorious and most exalted God permits. Under these six classifications, there are many useful varieties whose nature, God willing, we shall explain. I like that there is a classification that's basically mental health. Yes! Isn't that great? You do have to yeah. moderate yourself. I am concerned by the fact that there is an entire section on insomnia, and I think <laughs> maybe that's something this author was particularly interested in. I think so, possibly. Uh, we shall speak furthermore about the choices suitable to each person owning to his constitution and age and shall include all these elements in the form of simple tables because the discussions of the sages and discordances in many different books may bore the reader. So he's keeping it short and sweet. I don't appreciate that. I want the discussions of the same. <laughs> Men, in fact, desire from science nothing else but the benefits, not the arguments, but the definitions. I'm sorry, did that guy just, like, tell me I wasn't a man? <laughs> I think it means mankind in this case. Yeah. Accordingly, our intention in this book is to shorten long-winded discourses and synthesize various ideas. Our intention also, however is not to neglect the advice of the ancients. So it's a pretty comprehensive little text, and it's got these beautiful folios. And let's see, let's just flip over to the first one. And 
Matt can see it, but you guys can't. There's these beautiful plates. And oh, I'll, they are nice. I'll see if I can scan a couple and, and put them up with proper credit. Okay. So, the first one. I'll pick out a couple, a few ones. The first one, it's number one, is dill, which is aneti. It's nature. Warm and dry towards the end of the second degree and beginning of the third. Which, I don't know what the degrees are. I'm guessing it might be either seasons or if you dry it out. Maybe it's like the level of dryness. Yeah, possibly. I don't know, man. It's That sounds like science, though. I'm, I'm on board. Yes, degrees. Uh, the optimum. So the optimum way to use it is the kind that is green, fresh, and tender. So preferably you have fresh dough. I was expecting them to say the optimum way to use it is to put it in cheese. Also good. Also very good. Or tartar sauce. Ooh. Now I want to go to a chipper. Okay. Uh, usefulness. Brings relief to a stomach that is cold and windy. Yes, that is a problem. You know, I suppose, like, it does have a type of warmth to it. It is a sort of spice, yeah. you know? So it does it does help that. I don't think I've ever experienced a cold stomach. A cold stomach? Well, you just haven't gone far enough north. Like, <laughs> okay, see, fair. See, <laughs> but the Finns, for instance, the Finns are known for their wonderful, I think it's called Kalikaito, which is this beautiful salmon dill soup. And it's basically salmon, cream, dill, and potatoes. And that's the soup. And it's the most amazing thing. They just put dill in everything. Did not know this about the fish. Yes. It's wonderful. I love dill. But yeah. So Kalakaito, try it. You will love it. I, I can't. I don't eat fish. Oh, man. Well, listeners, you try it. Okay. Dangers. It is harmful to the kidneys and causes nausea with its essence. Neutralization of the dangers with lemoncellis, which is a side note. This could be the juice of small lemons, which could be. There's also limoncello, which is the Italian, like, alcoholic lemonade, basically. It's fantastic. Um, Effects. Moderately nourishing. It is good for cold and damp temperaments for old people in winter and cold regions. So pretty sound stuff so far. Because you can, if if it's too acerbic... Or too too spicy, you can mull it with a lemon, and that's also found in a lot of dishes. Like you with when you go to a chipper, you can get the tartar sauce, and you can squeeze lemon on it. You know, on your fish and chips. Why am I saying this to you? That's what I do. That is how it is served in Alaska. I only just realized that by chipper you meant something to do with fish and chips. I thought it was like a type of sandwich or something. Oh no, sorry. Chippers are are it's the Irish term for like a fish and chips shop. Yes. <laughs> Everyone's got their favorite chipper. It is it is much debated. I have not yet formed my opinion on the best Dublin chipper yet. Keep us posted. I will, especially once I get back. Okay, let's find another one. Okay, here's one. It is number 18. Winter. Because the seasons are also in this little health handbook. Are they in the food section? Um, there's... Honestly, there's just these little plates. So... The other, the next one, the one previous is sour pomegranate, and the next one is lettuce. So, yes. So, yeah. All right, tell us what happens if we eat winter. Or at least how we how we should use winter. I do know that sexual intercourse is actually listed in here, so. As a positive or a negative? Oh, well, I found it. Shall we read that one next? Go for it. Okay, so let's, let's do winter first, and then we'll continue on with the theme of, of today's episode, I suppose. <laughs> 
So winter or hyumps. Nature. Cold. Winter or what? Hyumps. H-Y-E-M-P-S. I think it's meant to be the Latin. Yeah, it is not. No, it is. I mean, it's definitely not. It could be the Italian. I, mean, I just it looks Googled like it's that meant to be the and, Latin. and I got this text. Oh, really? The first result is winter, hyumps, nature, cold in the third degree. Yep, there it is. That's funny. Well, yeah. It's nature is cold in the third degree. No kidding. Uh, humid in the second when it's normal. Don't know what that means, but normal. I was going to ask if that was the author or you. Nope, that is the author. Optimum. It's final period, which is to say nobody likes winter and we all like it when it starts becoming spring. I mean, I agree. Usefulnesses. Good for diseases of the liver and helpful to the digestion, which makes sense to me because... After, like, having a really big meal, I would rather go out in the cold than be sitting in, like, a really, really hot day. I guess that's true. Although I'm not sure winter is good for diseases of the liver, because, like, one, cold suppresses your immune system, so it's not good for diseases in general. Two, I don't know about you, but when it's cold and dark out, I drink more. Yeah. It's not good for the liver. Uh, Yeah, so maybe not as good for the liver. Okay, well, dangers... It is harmful to phlegmatic diseases and increases phlegm. Yeah, no kidding, you get sick. Neutralization of the dangers. With fire and heavy clothing. Stay warm. (laughs) (laughs) I know, (laughs) it's very straightforward. Like he said, he's getting rid of the arguments here. He's making it very short and sweet. Um, It is good for warm and dry temperaments for the young in southern regions and those close to the sea. So it's better the less of it there is. Pretty much. Or if you have a very warm and dry temper. I don't know what that means. I I don't know either, but for some reason it feels like it makes sense. Like if if you have a wet and cold temperament, you're like, if you think, think about it like a fisherman, right? Like if you've got this Mm -hmm. old kaji fisherman who's like got this sour temperament, you don't want to go out into the winter storm with him. But if you've got this bright, sharp spirited warm-tempered guy. I'd rather go out into a winter storm with him. I guess. I would be I like, would be more happy to deal with a cold-tempered guy on a hot summer day than I would otherwise. See, I I know that like the warm and cold, dry and wet are part of the whole theory of humors. Like I know yeah. that. I just have no intuitive understanding of what a dry temperament is. We should look into that. Let's come back to that. That would be very interesting to figure that out. Okay, but to go back to our uh, previous theme, number 68. And I shall tell you, there's a there's a lovely picture of this in, in Delicto. Oh. Yes. So Which number? 68. So close. I know, so close. Oh, man. Okay, coitus, also known as coitus in the Latin. Nature. The union of two for the purpose of emitting the sperm. So already our lesbians aren't included. No, already. The optimum is the kind that lasts until the sperm has been completely emitted. So, you know, no notion of a woman getting anything out of this. No. Uh, usefulness for the conservation of the species. It's a very Catholic I mean, interpretation. He's not wrong. That is a use. That's true. Dangers. For those who suffer from cold and dry breathing. What? That's what it says. Cold and dry breathing. And the neutralization of such dangers 
comes from eating sperm-producing foods. So, aphrodisiacs. That was a really important, like, last few syllables there. (laughs) I thought you were saying something completely different. No. No. (laughs) Uh, There's also this one, which I personally like. Uh, Fencing is number 70. Fencing with swords or fencing with, like, wooden planks? Fencing with swords. There's also horsemanship, which we can get to. Um, at a later time, but fencing is number 70, also known as uh, luctatio, the nature. It is a moderate exercise involving two persons. There is nothing, there is nothing to do with swords here, but the picture does include swordsmanship. So are you sure that we aren't still on the coitus section? Also <laughs> a moderate exercise involving two persons. That's also fair. Uh, optimum, the kind that one's over leaves one with a feeling of lightness. Fair, fair. Again, could be applied to the former. Uh, usefulness for strong bodies. Suppose you get stronger by, by fencing. Yeah, yeah, it's not wrong. Dangers. Swords. For the chest. So don't get stabbed. You know, that's always a good one. When he says for the chest, does he mean like overexerting yourself and like that kind of thing? Or does he mean you might get a sword in your chest? It literally does not say. It just says for the chest. Uh, but here, here's the best part. The neutralization of the danger is sleeping after a bath. What? I don't know. <laughs> like, does that help with heart attacks? I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, does it, like, does I guess it help if with you're overexerting yourself, you could have a nice relaxing bath and a nap and that'll probably that's, help. I mean, that's what I do after fencing practice. I take a shower and go to bed. So clearly the medieval health handbook is a useful thing in all essences. You know, so check your temperament. Maybe talk to your priest. I do think he missed an opportunity by not listing danger. Swords are sharp. Right? It's, well, it's interesting that there's no swords listed whatsoever, but the picture does include swords. But then horsemanship doesn't doesn't have anything about horses either, so... Were you saying something about priests a second ago? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, if you're going to use the medieval mm-hmm. health handbook... It's for the whole person. So talk to your local barber surgeon. Talk to your local priest. Do not consult the medieval health handbook independently of going to see your local expert. Side effects may include a cold and dry (laughs) temperament. Yeah, you know? But yeah, we we will pick a couple more out of here uh, at a future date. But that is a, a brief look at the medieval health handbook. Useful lists of useful things without the arguments and long-winded explanations. I really... I, that... Whoever wrote that had just a weird... I don't understand his thought process where he's like, I'm going to write down what winter is and that you should be warm during it. <laughs> I mean... I No, there's, no, there's nothing I can say there. No. I mean, he said it would be very comprehensive and you've got to give him that. It is very comprehensive. Yeah. Because you've got, let's see, the first is treatment of the air, which concerns the heart. So, you know, it's about heart health. you got to keep your cardiovascular yeah. system going. And you got to know that in the wintertime, you're going to get cold. So you got to bundle up. Think of it like, you know, your mom's advice. This is a book of your mom's advice. Your medieval mom. Yeah, I can't uh, count the number of times my mother has told me that the best kind of sex is the one that lasts until the, all the sperm's out. <laughs> Oh dear. I 
mean, yeah. Regulating the person by moderating joy, anger, fear, distress. So, well, I think we've just about covered it. Yes. Head to toe. There we go. Thank you for coming on this journey with me of this very strange saga. It was a journey. <laughs> Hopefully we'll have a slightly less strange... I don't know, or more strange. I, I, I'll be interested in seeing what you bring to the table next next time. I don't think I'm going to be able to top that. Well, I'm going to have a hard time trying to top this one. Regardless, this is one of my favorite sagas, so... I think that's about it. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. For more geeky editions, or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. Check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Sorry, I, can't, I, I heard your, your roommates for just a second going, it's wildly incorrect. Yeah, that would be Christian. <laughs> Boys, I'm recording. They are not listening to me whatsoever.